welcome back to The Rate of Change with York Wealth Management. As advisors to some of the wealthiest families in the country, The Rate of Change is a podcast designed to help you in the pursuit of building long-term wealth through the insights of some of the brightest minds in asset management. I'm your host, Murdoch Gaddy, and in today's broadcast, we're speaking with Luke Cummings, the co-founder, CIO, and managing director of Harvest Lane Asset Management. If you enjoy reading about the latest mergers and acquisitions and takeovers in the AFR and always wondered what is the best way to make money out of these stories, then I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation with Luke. For first-timers, Harvest Lane is an absolute return fund with a mergers and acquisitions arbitrage trading strategy. The fund seeks to profit from M&A activity due to pricing inefficiencies whilst in the process of these takeovers and mergers. Luke discusses current activity, what a good opportunity for them looks like, how they manage risk if a play goes against them, and we explore some recent activity in the market, such as Origin Energy, Liontown, and we dig into some sectors, including the tech space. Harvest Lane's approach has returned 10.61% for the past 12 months, with an 8.45% annualized return since inception. For me, I really enjoyed hearing Luke unpack the nuances of this strategy, and there are so many similarities to playing poker. In particular, hearing the play-by-play for the rise and fall for the Liontown deal, this deal had many major players in the game, such as Jen Reinhardt, Chris Ellison from Mineral Resources vying for the company. So join us as we hear how Luke and his team managed to navigate this circus to a profit whilst many others failed. Before we get into this podcast, I'd also like to encourage you to listen to the disclaimer at the end of this podcast and to keep your feedback coming. You can reach me at mgatti at ywm. So, with that being said, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. So, sit back, relax, and enjoy it. Luke Cummings, welcome to the Rate of Change with York Wealth Management. Thanks, Murdoch. Good to be here. Really good to have you here, Luke. Um, why don't we start things off and can you give everyone a bit of an insight into your formative years and how you uh, managed up in the beautiful world of uh, financial markets? Yeah, sure. Um, probably not uh, the well-trodden path for, for most. Um, grew up in a small, smallish country town in New South Wales. Um, I don't think anyone in my family had ever owned uh, a share as far as I'm aware. Um, didn't know anyone in the stock market, didn't know anything about the stock market. Um, so it certainly wasn't... Uh, Something that was was on my radar. Um, fairly, you know, low socioeconomic to, to mid socioeconomic background, I guess. Um, and uh, just before I was meant to start university, literally the day before, as a uh, as a journalism um, undergrad, uh, had a very last minute change of heart. Ended up working uh, in the first instance of partner asset management. It's maybe a firm that's fairly well known to. Um, to your listeners, when uh, they were quite small themselves, I think maybe I was employee number thirteen or, or fourteen. So, uh, and I just thought, you know, it was the, the most brilliant thing I'd, I'd ever seen, this sort of concept that, um, you know, I guess if you don't know better, you assume that the way you 
make money is you, you work for it and you get an hourly rate and you rely on a you know a boss who's going to give you a pay rise and um, that's how life goes and I think to have your eyes open to the fact that um, you know there's this cool thing called the stock market and uh, you know through your own endeavors I guess you can use other people's endeavors to um, you know make frankly amounts of money that I would never have imagined or envisaged um, you know when I was uh, was growing up so um, that was you know sort of ended up in, in markets, I guess. Um, I, I suppose we'll get into, you know, how Harvest Lane came to be. But um, that was, was my background. Um, you know, I, I couldn't – I don't think I'd even heard of the internet until I was probably 17 years of age, as in I, I don't think we had – maybe we had a computer at home. It certainly didn't have internet access. Um, played lots of sports when I was a kid and, and just had a, you know, I guess a kind of 1980s, 1990s, um, uh, you know, Australian childhood. Yeah, well, could you imagine all the kids listening to this now just going, <clears throat> sorry, what? You, you didn't have internet until you were 17? <laughs> I'm not sure I had a mobile phone until foreign I was 20. So, <laughs> Such a foreign concept in this modern world. Absolutely. Um, so journalism, um, the reason I find that so interesting is I, being on trading floors and what, some, some of the best managers I know of money have the most interesting pathways into management. Uh, what made you look at journalism? Yeah, look, I think, um, as I said, I, I played a lot of sports uh, as a kid and, and I think, you know, absent being an athlete, I thought that being a, a sports journalist would actually be a pretty cool way to um, to, to stay involved in that world. Um, had zero concept of the fact, of course, that, uh, you know, everyone wants to be a sports journalist, right? Not many people, uh, you know, want to be a political journalist or a financial journalist. They uh, They want to be a sports journalist. So, um, I, I guess I had reasonably good marks in, in English at school. My teacher told me I was a good writer and um, you know, that seemed like a, a logical thing at the time to do. Um, and, you know, I guess it uh, yeah, spins me out a little bit to think that, you know, my life may have been completely different, um, you know, had I gone ahead and, and done that. Um, I think with the benefit of, of hindsight, it probably would have been better off focusing on a law degree, uh, would have been more useful for, uh, for what I'm doing now than um, a journalism degree. But uh, it's funny how life works out, I guess. Well, journalism would taught you how to research, essentially, which is predominantly 90% of what you do, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the, the love of, I guess, reading, um, we'll, we'll talk about it a bit more, but, you know, the, there's a lot of reading, there's a lot of researching, there's a lot of, uh, you know, digging for things and, and, I guess, nuggets that other people have overlooked. So um, if you don't enjoy reading, you're going to find this, uh, diffi- this job pretty difficult, I guess. Very true. So Harvest Lane. Harvest Lands, your baby. How did that come to be? What's happening now? What's the philosophy? Yeah, so um, look, again, uh, for someone who's you know quite the planner and likes to be organised, um, I sort of fell into being a fund manager too, I suppose. So I uh, worked at Platinum Asset Management, great experience, a um, bunch of really smart guys um, there who I had you know good exposure to in the early days, I guess, because the, the team was so small. Um, I took a detour and worked um, for a subsidiary of ANZ for a period of time. Um, I was, uh, you know, basically became a stockbroker, um, working for someone else, uh, was involved in uh, as a partner, you know, in in my own firm um, with a couple of other co-founders. We sold that business. That would have been circa kind of 2009, 2010. Um, so, you know, markets were still really bouncing around, I, I guess, a lot, Um uh, at that time, so the idea that you know you, you sort of had this pool of capital from the sale of our business, um, a non-compete clause, so you know couldn't necessarily go straight back into broking if that's uh, what I wanted to do, um, and, and it probably had always had an aversion, I guess, to, to kind of beta risk in markets, right? So I think this idea that you know 
most people make money when stock markets go up and most people lose money when stock markets go down. Um, it sort of feels to me like it's not quite enough control, right? Like the, even the best constructed portfolio um, of you know, predominantly long-only positions, at least in the traditional sense, um, you wake up tomorrow and you know, US market's down 15 or 20% for some reason. Um, you know, that portfolio is likely down by a, a similar number. Um, I think, you know, if you're 25 or 30 years of age and you have a job and your income's not dependent on the stock market and, you know, you're not retiring until you're 35, uh, 65 years old or um, or thereabouts, you know, you don't kind of have that exposure to sequencing risk, I guess, right? But when you have, you know, a pool of capital, but you don't have a job or don't have income, which was sort of the position that, that I was in post the sale of that business, um, the idea that, you know, a whole lot of work to construct a long-only portfolio, um but yet still at the mercy of the US market, you know, I, I guess out of the back end of the GSC wasn't particularly appealing, um, at least from my perspective. So I think we sort of started to think about, and I say we, I had a couple of co-founders um, initially, we sort of started to think about, okay, well, you know, how do we sort of protect and ideally grow this pool of money in a, a reasonably safe way? Um, something we'd also, you know, I guess done um, as part of our stockbroking life was, just look for, I guess, um, I'm going to call it a loophole, but really inefficiencies, right? Things that other people are overlooking that are sort of sitting in plain sight, but for various different reasons, um, you know, people just don't pay attention to. So I think in particular, you know, if I sort of go way, way back with small amounts of money, you know, buying a diversified portfolio of stocks when you're 23 or 24 years of age and, and you know really hoping to become wealthy as a result of that it just takes time right like it, it's very hard to buy bhp and westpac and woolworths and whatever else you know people buy um and, and expect to you know really grow your wealth um at an outsized rate but what sort of struck you know me or struck us was there were all these cool things of which you know merger arbitrage was was one of them where the market would just you know misprice them for various different reasons so um we just got to the point where we're just looking for market mispricings and we're trying to identify things where you know future share price performance would be dictated by events specific to that company and, and not the market you know more broadly um and I, I guess we'll get into like you know a lot of the merger arb and event type stuff that we do um you know really fits that bill because all of a sudden you have these stocks where their performance is you know specific to whatever transaction or event they're subject to, um, they should have very little correlation with other stocks in the portfolio and, and they should have very little correlation, um, you know, chosen well with the, the market more broadly. A um, little bit of a tangent, this, this story is floating around on the internet uh, in various places, but um, I guess my other aversion to, um, to losing money and, and to having, I guess, uh, market-linked performance as opposed to stock-specific performance um, one of the loopholes is maybe a story for another day that uh, we thought we'd found in the market or, or an interesting niche. Um, we became pretty confident early on, I'm talking when I'm maybe 22, 23 here, uh, that we'd figured out a way to pretty consistently make money without losing it. Um, definitely would not recommend this to anyone, um, but uh, got to the point where we started borrowing money on credit cards, like with cash advances um, in our early 20s to, to fund this trading strategy, which sounds absolutely crazy with the benefit of hindsight. Um, I, I completely understand. But the thing was, um, it was a very short, you know, kind of hold period, I guess. Um, the you, you had kind of an inbuilt safety buffer of sorts uh, in the strategy. And the key was, you know, just not to lose money, right? Like if, you, if you're borrowing money from anyone, whether it's a credit card, a margin loan or anything else out of your, uh, your mortgage, um, you know, disaster happens when you're, you're leveraging either positions that you lose money on, right? So I, I think that really, you know, I guess focused my mind on making sure that we protected capital and protected downside because 
you know, I think a lot of people go wrong not by failing to make money in good times, but you know, by losing too much or suffering drawdowns that are too large um, when times are you know when markets are not performing well. So um, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a backstory that, as I said, uh, I absolutely emphasise that no one in their right mind should ever consider doing. I want to know what that strategy was. <laughs> We look, I mean, the, the really short version was, um, uh, which we still do a little bit today, but in, in a far, um, uh, much less than we sort of did once upon a time because we're sort of bigger now and it, it's harder to exploit. But, um, you know, this concept of kind of these deeply discounted, um, you know, um, cap raisings, right, whether that be a share purchase plan or a rights issue or, or whatever the case may be, um, keep in mind I'm talking about 20-odd years ago here now. So, um like most inefficiencies in markets, they tend to get uh, traded away over time. But I think if you kind of go back to, you know, finance 101 or 201 or whatever, we all studied at, at university, the idea was that you know, markets are supposed to be pretty efficient, right? So, um, and we all know about kind of theoretical X rights price, um, you know, if, if there's a rights issue that a company is conducting. Um, and I'd say a lot of the time now when a, a company goes X, uh, X rights, you know, very frequently it will fail to hold its theoretical X rights price. So, you know, the idea that you would own the stock beforehand can take up your rights and make money, it, it doesn't actually usually work, right? If anything, the, the opposite. Um, once upon a time, though, that, that certainly wasn't the case. And I'd say something like a um, share purchase plan, as an example, um, which is not typically pro rata. It probably looks more pro rata these days because companies tend to conduct share purchase plans more like their rights issues. But once upon a time, irrespective of holding size, you know, you could buy, I guess, initially $5,000 worth of stock and then it became 10000 and it became $30,000 worth of stock. Because you don't have institutions uh, actively participating in share purchase plans because it's too small for them, um, that part of the market was just far too inefficient. So instead of trading back to the share purchase plan price or the theoretical adjusted price post the um, share purchase plan, quite often these things wouldn't move at all. Um, you know, so if, if you had the ability to buy discounted stock you know, through a share purchase plan, through selective rights issues, um, you know, you're basically making free money is, is what it came down to. Um, so a little bit of market risk between when you, you know, um, pay your application money and, and can sell the stock. Typically, that was a period of less than a week, um, which is obviously a fairly stressful week. Uh, but you had a nice, um, you know, uh, inbuilt buffer discount um, on the downside. So, you know, you were probably kind of 10 or 20% ahead of the curve before you even got started. So, um yeah, in, in a nutshell, that's the very short version of, uh, of what we're exploiting, um, which went on for a long time, actually, um, which was, was really cool. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't work anymore, so um, which is a shame. But, yeah, it was, uh, it was a pretty fun time. And, and, look, I think when you talk about how did you end up at Harvest Lane and the strategy that, you know, that we're trading, I think, um, I mean, to be a fun, active fund manager, you can't believe markets are efficient. But I think, for me, that was a real eye-opener um, around the fact that, okay, well, you know, you think that something really cool like that would be exploited or would be traded away and, and it wasn't, which I think probably just made us start looking for other things that, you know, we, we felt were like that, I suppose. Um, and we'll, we'll get onto some good stories about that in a moment, I guess. So moral of the story is you're always looking for um, sticking money and not losing it, finding essentially uh, – miscalculation or, or a discount where essentially there is a profit margin which you could calculate, decrease the risk and then have a, a short-term exit, which I suppose is the cornerstone of what arbitrage is. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Like in, in that instance, absolutely. Um, that, that's exactly, you know, what we're doing. And 
I sort of think about what we're doing now as, as a variation of that, right? Like if, if you sort of buy situations you know, that are mispriced frequently enough, then you know, whether 20 years ago it was a discounted you know, share purchase plan or whether today it's a, you know, um, a takeover or you know, merger or, or whatever it is, if you're buying stuff that's mispriced, the market usually at some point figures out how to price it correctly and, and then it's just bankroll management, right? So if, if you've got an edge, if you can keep exploiting the edge over and over again, um, you know, the, the profits tend to take care of themselves and you just need to make sure that you're adequately position-sized you know, in, in each instance so that you know, when things do go wrong, which they inevitably do, um, you know, it, it's kind of a paper cut rather than um, you know, something more fatal. So for everyone out there that's not familiar with merger arbitrage, um, sorry, merger and acquisition arbitrage, uh, do you want to give a bit of an overview of what that exactly means and uh, a couple of examples? Yeah, for sure. So um, I guess one that's catching the public's imagination you know, at the moment as, as we record this, um, I should say we don't have a position in it, but um, Origin Energy, right? So Origin Energy um, would be a name, I guess, familiar to, to most, one of Australia's biggest you know, electricity retailers. Um, is currently the subject of a bid between um, uh, where Brookfield and, and EIG are, are jointly bidding via a scheme of arrangement for, for Origin. Um, I would say merger are kind of flies under the radar most of the time. No one really, uh, you know, most people probably don't know about it. No one thinks about it. Um, it doesn't get much newspaper coverage and, and this one's really captured people's attention. I think um, Australian Super, uh, you know, obviously a very big custodian of the wealth, you know, superannuation wealth of a lot of Australian, um, you know, mums and dads uh, has been pretty outspoken about the price being too low in this instance um, and have been putting their money where their mouth is acquiring shares, um, the votes later this week, it's going to be really close. Uh, stick my neck out and say I think it's going to get voted down in its current form. Let's uh, let's see what happens. But um, it's probably a, a good segue. So um, you know, keep the math simple. I guess um, stock trading at sixty cents, let's say for argument's sake, um, receives a takeover bid. Um, you know, from one of their competitors at at a dollar a share, let's say. Um, and the, the way that bid would be announced would look something like, um, you know, company XYZ is buying company ABC for a dollar a share. You know, that's a, whatever, 60% premium to its recent trading price. Um, we expect the transaction to complete in three months' time and, you know, it's, it's subject to, you know, receiving 50.1% shareholder acceptances, um, what they would call no material adverse changes, which is usually an unusual change in the level of like earnings or, or net tangible assets. So, um, with three months to go, I'd expect when that stock resumes trading, it probably trades at you know, 96, 97 cents, let's say. So from our perspective, you know, there's really sort of three things that happen there, right? We, we buy the stock at 96, you know, hoping and expecting to get a dollar. And, and that's fine. That doesn't sound very interesting. But, um, you know, if you do that often enough, paying 96 and receiving a dollar for in a pretty low risk scenario, um, you know, works just fine. Um Ideally, what sometimes happens um, is, you know, that $1 bid gets improved to $1.10 or $1.20 or $1.50. Um, I think I was telling you when we were speaking recently that the craziest one I've seen was a bid that started at a dollar and finished at $8.50. Um, and people just say, how the hell is you know that even possible? Um, it's like an auction for a house, right? You, you turn up on the day, you don't know who's going to come. And, and first bid, you know, very rarely is the last or only bid. And it's just a matter of, well, you know, who else wants to own it? and, and um, how much can they afford and how keen are they? Um, and, and, you know, that's really in, in a situation what that is. 
so that's obviously really good for the strategy. And, and what we're trying to avoid is buying something at 96 cents or 97 cents, expecting to get a dollar and then something goes wrong um, and the stock trades back to you know 60 cents where it was before or 50 cents or, or whatever the case may be. So, um, you know, the, the key obviously there is you, you want to keep, you know, paying 96 and 97 cents and getting a dollar occasionally you want to get a dollar 10 and a dollar 20 and as infrequently as possible you want to avoid you know having to sell because the transaction breaks and, and you're getting you know 50 or 60 cents so um, as you'd imagine a lot of our process is designed around um, you know identifying what we think the risk is of the transaction not completing in the first instance and, and getting comfortable around that um, you know assuming that's the case it'll go into the portfolio in some way shape or form um, Trying to then, I guess, secondly, identify who else you know, might be interested, um, if not just the current bidder, and, and also, you know, at least a rough idea of what we think you know, valuation might be that that's reasonable in the circumstances. Um, and I guess the third facet of that, you know, more recently as we get a bit bigger, is you know sometimes injecting ourselves into the process in a more active way. So you can run this strategy somewhat passively, as in you still have to be active in terms of doing the work to decide what goes in your portfolio. Um, you have to be really organised around monitoring, you know, key dates and vote levels, and you know when conditions, um, if there are any, are satisfied or not satisfied. Um, but I think you know the, the more active component of that is, you know, we've, we've probably participated in sixty deals a year for the last you know ten years or so, um, maybe more than that. So you get a pretty good idea of what works, what doesn't work. Um, you know, when buyers can be pushed a little bit harder, maybe when a target company, you know. Um, wants to engage but hasn't quite figured out how to do that we we find you know occasionally that inserting ourselves into that process behind the scenes is um can be useful so um in a nutshell you know what we're doing i, I think where's the edge there you know the, the 96 or 97 cents that you're paying part of that's just a time value of money component right so interest rates and you know the discounting of future cash flow back to today's dollars is, is part of that part of that is the risk that you know the transaction doesn't complete so um you know buyers and sellers have to i guess make a judgment on what the likelihood is of that happening or, or not happening um but there's some other you know sort of i guess natural reasons for people to sell so other small and, and mid-cap you know long only fund managers um i, I mentioned that beta or you know, the market correlation comes out a lot of these transactions once they're announced because the future return path is dictated by the transaction itself and, and not the market more broadly. So, um, you know, market goes up 10%, probably doesn't affect it very much. Market goes down 10% shouldn't affect it, you know, very much and, and certainly doesn't impact upon the likelihood um, of the transaction closing, um, assuming we've done our homework. Um, that's good for us because that's what we're managing to. But for a, a manager who needs a certain amount of beta in their portfolio and is you know, sort of tracking a, a benchmark, um, having the beta fall out of that um, stock is actually you know, a negative from their perspective, right, because it increases their tracking error. So um, that's a factor. Um, and I think the other factor is you know, lots of these names, especially when they're sort of smaller mid-cap, you have lots of retail shareholders who – when a stock's up 60 or 70% a day because they've got a takeover bid, are really happy to sell it, right? Um, I think in other deeper markets, like in the US and Europe and, and other parts of Asia, you know, event funds, M&A funds, whatever you want to call our, our style of strategies is, is quite common. But in Australia, um, to the best of my knowledge, we're the only one you know, who, are, uh, who are doing it in a systematic fashion um, where that's our, our sole focus. So I'm, I'm sure there are other kind of multi-strat, funds um and maybe long only funds that you know do bits and pieces of it maybe because they're familiar with the stocks that you know are subject to the bid or because they have more cash at any particular point in time than, than they would have otherwise but um yeah when you start looking around for people doing it actively in australia um 
we're in. So uh, we, we usually have you know, pretty good choice of um, uh, stock being offered to us when these these deals are announced. It's quite interesting. Um, you're talking about risk mitigation uh, before. Um, we've just seen uh, Lionstown play out. The spectacle that was uh, Lionstown. Do you want to um, use that as an example to walk through the good, the bad, and the ugly, and you know how? I'm not too sure if you were in that, and then how you deal with something of that magnitude and all the events that unfolded. Yeah, um, I mean that's a you know probably unusually complex situation as well in some ways. I think um, you know a lot of this stuff is really vanilla. And boring, I would say. Not boring to us. Uh, I, I love it, and um, I, I think you know the whole thing is just like sport in some ways. Um, but you know, a lot of it is a transaction get announced, gets announced. You have to do a lot of research to make sure that you know you kind of have a handle on whatever risks or conditions are inherent in, in the deal. And you know, honestly, not much happens. You you buy something at a discount, and more often than not, they complete in their current form, and, and that's it. Um, you know, it gets exciting if there's a counter bid uh, or multiple counter bids, and um, it's obviously not very exciting if the transaction falls over. But but Line Town was really interesting because um, you know it had had it had traded at a discount to to the bid at the time, um, at least in the first instance. So um, and we did have a little bit of it at that point. Not a lot. It wasn't a big position size for us at that time. There were still a few risks in the deal that you know, we weren't particularly comfortable with or yet comfortable with, which sometimes happens, right? You Sometimes you just need time to get your head around um, you know, the variables to um, work out what your ultimate position size should be. But we did have some. And, and then when it traded to the bid price at, at $3, um, in the first instance, we weren't a seller. But... I think as it became clear, it became pretty clear it was Gina who was was buying that stock, at least initially. And I guess this is where experience is helpful. And, and I must say that, you know, you don't know this in advance, so it's not like we knew for sure that, you know, that that was going to be the case. But we've seen other situations where Gina and, and also Chris Ellison um, from Mineral Resources, um, when they buy stock, they're not buying stock to bid themselves, they're buying stock to block potentially. Um and, you know, it's not unusual for them both to turn up in the same situation. So I, I think the thing with Liontown was we couldn't see the path through, um, you know, for, for the bid succeeding in its current form, certainly. I mean, they, you know, effectively that buying had, had put paid to that. And then the question was, well, you know, are they going to bid themselves or not? Um, and look, you know, I played a lot of poker when I was younger. Um, haven't played a lot recently, right? But, you know, the, the thing that's fascinating to me about poker is, you know, there's the cards, right? So it's it's pretty easy to get a handle on, you know, pre-flop, what your odds are, you know, based on the hand that you have, you know, what your odds are at any point in time based on the hand that you have and, and the cards you, you see in the middle. But, of course, the game gets interesting when there's more cards in the middle and now all of a sudden there's a bunch of unknowns and you have to try and work out, you know, what your actual odds are based on what your cards are, but also what others may have and what others may represent that they have. And, you know, a lot of kind of, the dark arts of murder up, I guess, is, um, you know, that people tell you what they want you to hear or they tell you nothing at all. And, and it's trying to work out in that situation at least. And, and it's not normal to have to, you know, kind of go to this extent of doing analysis on people as opposed to the transaction itself. But I think some other transactions we'd been in previously told us that Gina probably wasn't going to bid at least straight away. Um, and look, you know, as it turned out, um, obviously for anyone that was in that trade, they, they did a 
pretty hefty cap raising at a pretty big discount, you know, not too soon thereafter, which meant that any ARB funds that were in that trade, um, you know, expecting that there was going to be a counter bid, um, you know, from Gina or, or anyone else, um, you know, obviously lost a lot of money through that process. So, you know, what sort of happened there was, um, I mean, the downside in that transaction is what we're trying to avoid. Um, absolutely. The, the difficulty in Line Town, I think, you know, even for us, um, was, you know, part of the attraction of this strategy is the counter bid, right? So when there's a bid at $3 and you see someone buying a lot of the stock once upon a time, you know, my first reaction would have been, oh, this is great. There's another, you know, another bid coming, right? And, and if you think about, you know, those transactions I mentioned where the first bid's at a dollar and it, you know, ends north of eight or the first bid's at 3.75 and it ends at 11, at some point someone's had to aggressively get involved and buy stock and, and, and come over the top from a bid perspective. So I think the confusion, you know, with less experience in Line Town, I could easily have thought that, you know, all of that buying was going to lead to a counter bid. Um, when in fact, you know, not only did it not reduce, uh, not lead to a counter bid, but it actually led to a, you know, the deal breaking and a, a pretty, you know, big cap raising at a discount. So, um, yeah, it was a bit of a curly one to throw at me, to be honest. That's, uh, you know, not common, I would say. Um, but, you know, that, that's the benefit of experience, right? Like sometimes I talk to, you know, financial advisors and, and research firms and they're like, oh, you know, there are vehicles offshore where you just, you know, this is sort of like passive and it's done via an ETF. And I, my first question is, well, how's that ETF going? And they're like, terrible. <laughs> it's like, it makes sense, right? You, if you just bought all of these deals when they're announced and just, you know, don't actively manage them, don't adjust your position sizing, don't make phone calls to check assumptions and, you know, kind of do the industry background and just let things run their course. Um, I absolutely guarantee you lose money in this strategy because, um, you know, the, the key is to avoid the losses and the blow-ups. And, I mean, it's just bankroll management, right? It, it's, it's the same as poker, I guess, right? There are some hands you'll never play because the cards are rubbish. There are some hands that, you know, for the right value you'll play um, doesn't guarantee that you'll win. But if, if you position size in terms of, um, you know, uh, what you have in the pot um, at that point in time, then it's fine. And there are other things where, you know, the odds are massively in your favour and, and that's, you know, when you want to have a lot of money in the pot, um, albeit like poker in markets, you know, weird things happen and, and sometimes you can think you're on a sure thing and, and you're not. So we're just ultra focused on just making sure that everything is position sized accordingly, no matter how confident we are, so that if something you know unexpected does happen, um, yeah, it hurts a little bit and, you know, lose a couple of percent of the portfolio NTA in a deal potentially, but, um, you know, it's fine. That happens a couple of times a year, has done every year for 10 years and, and you, you live to fight another day. What you don't want to do is be so invested in something that goes wrong that, um, you know, it, it wipes out your you know, capital and, and then you've got nowhere to go from there. So, um, you know, it's a bit of, someone called me a bush lawyer the other day. I think um, to your point about being a journalist, I think you, you really need to understand, you know, the laws that govern these takeovers and schemes in Australia, um, what the rights of bidders and targets are, you know, what the rights of shareholders are. And I think a lot of it's just experience. Like there's a, a lot of commonality between all of these transactions um, and, you know, we, we don't at the moment at least have an awful lot of competition. A lot of these deals in the, the smaller mid-cap deals, the big offshore funds are too big to, to play in that space. There's no one really exploiting it in Australia. Probably lots of private investors actually who used to work as fund managers or, you know, prop traders in investment banks. I know a few who, you know, work from home and, and sort of trade this with their own private capital. But, um, yeah, it's an interesting space. It's a very, very interesting space. Uh, for people that don't have a chart in front of them, what, uh, what were the actual prices? 
lines out? Like, where did it start? You said $3. Where did it end up and where did it finish? Yeah, so, um, I mean, the interesting thing about Liontown uh, in particular was that there was a lot of talk about, you know, this bid before it actually became a bid. Um, and, and in fact, Liontown had sort of disclosed over that journey that, that they'd had a couple of approaches um, you know, over time. And, and I guess it just kind of eventually got to the point where, you know, the, the approach was sort of so good that um, uh, they were happy to try and firm something up with the bidder. But um, I mean, the stock, you know, I mean, lithium's obviously been pretty volatile. Well, I was going to say for the better part of the last year, but really for the better part of the last few years. But, um, you know, Liontown was trading, you know, let's say between like a dollar and you know, sort of a dollar and two in the lead up to the bid, I guess. I, I think a lot of that sort of trading above a dollar sixty, you know, through to two dollars was on that bid speculation. But immediately before they announced that bid, the stock was trading at about a dollar fifty and, and the bid was um was pitched at three dollars. So after it was announced, the stock sort of traded, you know, between two sixty and two eighty for a period of time. Um and, and that's, you know, sort of when we had started building our position. Um and then traded almost straight to three, um, which was around the time that you know we, we were a seller. It actually traded through three. I think it got to like three or four, three or five, maybe a bit higher. Um, and then you know sort of bounced around between two eighty and three dollars for a couple of weeks, whilst people weren't really sure you know what Gina's intentions were and um, whether that was going to lead to another bid or not. Um, you know, stocks back to a dollar fifty now, dollar forty seven as we speak. So they you know having not succeeded with the three dollar bid. Um, the company raised a bunch of money at a dollar eighty. Um, soon after, it became clear that the bid wasn't going ahead. And, and even anyone who bought, you know, stock in that placement at a dollar eighty, um, you know, we're talking before about, you know, rights issues and placements and theoretical ex, theoretical ex rights prices. I mean, the stocks, you know, if you paid a dollar eighty, you're down what twenty percent on your money, you know, from that placement of, of just a few weeks ago. So, um, like, if you look at that chart, you know. If, you sort of traded that the whole way through. You've probably bought stock at between two sixty and two eighty, expecting to get three. And if you've held it the whole way through, well, you know now you're back to a dollar fifty. Um, you don't need a calculator to work out that that's uh, that's not ideal, right? So, um, you know, in, in many exercising, right? So yeah, uh, for, for sure. How much money is in the strategy? You say position sizing. So you know, what's your minimum you start with? What's the maximum you go on it? Yeah, for, for sure. So, I mean, like, you know, Line Town's a great example, right, of, of what we're trying to avoid. And and I think seeing that and living that is what scares people about, you know, merger up, right? It's like, okay, well, you can do lots and lots of good work and then you get one of those and, you know, the perception is it wipes out all your gains. I, I think if Origin fails, like we are discussing before in the next couple of days, you know, that, that's also probably a negative. Um, but, yeah, look, so, you know, we run um, – Currently, you know, 150 ish million dollars um, in the strategy. Um, you know, so I, I'd say that's quite small by most fund manager standards for sure. Um, but it, it gives you the ability to, you know, I guess look in places that, that others wouldn't necessarily look. Um, so we think about everything in, in terms of max loss. So we have a really comprehensive checklist of um, uh, items that we go through to determine, you know, how risky or safe we perceive a, a, an announced uh, deal to be. Um, just to give you a flavour of those types of things, um, you know, conditionality. So the more conditions there are or the more outs that a bidder has, the more likely they are to walk away 
um, you know, if and when times get tough. So in normal kind of markets and rising markets, you know, M&A deals that are announced tend to complete. Um, when deals tend to break more often than not, uh, sorry, not more often than not, but but more so than in normal times is in times of market stress, right? So GFC, COVID, all those types of things, you know, that's when buyers want to get out of deals, right? Because, you know, they've probably got other parts of their portfolio where, you know, they're running around with their hair on fire. They, they don't need to add more problems. So our whole process is aimed at making sure that irrespective of, you know, kind of market conditions, we, we want to know that the deal is binding and enforceable. Um, so something that's really easy for a buyer to use to get out of a deal is if a deal is subject to due diligence, you know, that's really in the buyer's control, not in the target's control. Um, if it's subject to the buyer's investment committee approval, um, you know, or subject to financing, uh, they're all things that the target and the target company shareholders have no control and very little visibility over. And it's super easy. You know, if I decide I want to get out of a deal because, you know, market conditions have changed or, you know, whatever, I just say, well, look, guys, you know, I wanted to do the deal, but, you know, we couldn't get financing approval or we couldn't get in investment committee approval um, or we found something in due diligence we didn't like, right? Now, um, you know, there was a bit of an Elon Musk Twitter circus, you know, a, a couple of years ago, right, where he bid for Twitter and then was kind of doing everything he could to get out of it. Um, the difficulty for him was in the US when you, you launch a your transaction of um, a bid, you need to lodge a whole bunch of docs with the SEC um, around your approvals, right? So it was already very clear that he had financing approval um, on an unconditional basis. So when he was trying to tell people, hey, I, I can't afford to do this anymore, my funders won't fund it, they're like, well, we've actually seen the documents that, that say that you can. So um, we might come back to that later. But um, so, so things inside the bidder's control, you know, we don't want ideally. Um, what we also don't really want for the most part is, you know, ACCC approval or Foreign Investment Review Board approval. Um, two, you know, politically influenced uh, bodies, whether they say they are or not, um, you know, the, the way that they uh, think about, you know, approving transactions or not sort of ebbs and flows with, um, you know, both the political party of the day, but also, I guess, public sentiment who, are, you know, the, the public at various times care more about foreign buyers buying some of our assets than, than they do, you know, at others. Um, you know, I, I think the new ACCC, head of the ACCC seems more intent on, um, I, I guess, having, you know, more stick than carrot, I suppose you would say, when it, it comes to some of these deals. So, you know, they're not deal breakers for us, but it's certainly something you need to consider in in a small, you know, fifty or hundred or three hundred mil market cap company. Um, you know, a triple C or further are unlikely to be issues. You know, for the most part, but you know, something big, you know, like Origin or you know, um, ANZ and Suncorp have a deal at the moment that you know, currently doesn't have a triple C approval. They're they're the things that are um are at risk. And then uh, you know, so material adverse change clauses, right? So a bid will say, okay, we're going to go ahead, but if your earnings fall by you know ten percent, it's between now and the end of the bid period or your net tangible assets decrease by 5% or, you know, X and Y and Z, um, you know, we have the ability to walk from the deal. Um, so we need to get really comfortable around, you know, the, the company's numbers, you know, level of earnings, NTA, whatever those other conditions may be, and, and just, you know, I guess, take a view on how likely we think it is that um, something, you know, will trigger there that allows the, the bidder to walk. Um, and then, you know, other things like, okay, who are the major shareholders? Um, what percentages do they own? What's their average price if we can work that out? Are they likely to be in favour of this bid? Um, are they likely to be against it? Um, who else is on the register that might bid? 
um, you know, what other transactions have happened in the sector, either in Australia or elsewhere. You know, what's the earnings multiple? What does the business look like in the comparative sense? Um, you know, does the company have any excess franking credits uh, on its balance sheet that maybe should be getting tipped out as, as part of this process? So that's sort of a flavour of, you know, what we're looking for. Um, you know, shareholder composition is interesting. Like, you know, as I said, I was super big shareholder in Origin at the moment. I've been buying more with the intent to block this deal. Um, sometimes having a blocking type shareholder on the register can be really helpful because it may lead to a higher bid or improved bid terms to get that, you know, shareholder over the line. Um, but of course, some shareholders, you know, maybe won't sell at any price. And, and that's kind of what we're trying to avoid because we don't want someone who's going to interrupt the current, you know, transaction and stop it from completing. So um, that's sort of a flavor of, you know, what we're looking for. And, and then it just becomes position sizing. So something we're super confident in is, you know, what we would consider to be a, a full position size. Um, you know, we run a few sort of different mandates, but in our public fund, you know, we're kind of risking 2.75% of NTA max on a deal we really, really like. So if that transaction breaks for some reason, even though we're really confident that, you know, it, it was going to go ahead, you know, it should cost us, you know, sort of 2.75% of NTA, give or take. Um, you know, as I said, we, we sort of had a couple of those a year. Um, in the earlier years, we, you know, probably were more likely to lose kind of circa 2% um, or more if, if something like that went wrong. I, I think we've been, you know, uh, we're better now at working out which transactions are likely to fail and, you know, either avoiding them altogether or, or having much smaller size. So, um, and then position sizing just becomes, you know, um, that's a full risk position. So something where it ticks a lot of our boxes, but maybe not all of them, maybe we need more information or maybe we're waiting to see how something plays out would be a three quarter risk unit half risk unit and usually a quarter risk unit. And a quarter risk unit is something that's, you know, a bit more speculative, but where we think, you know, that the upside justifies having a position. And if you lose a little bit of bit of money, you know, on that basis, um, you know, so be it because the, the risk reward stacks up. And, and, you know, all of those numbers sort of change. So we'll take an initial view on what something looks like at the start. It might be a 50% risk unit, you know, half a risk unit at the start, and it becomes a full risk unit over time. Or it might be a, you know, full risk unit on day one, and, and then something happens as the transaction proceeds, it changes our view on that, and, and maybe it goes back to being, you know, half risk position or, you know, no position at all, right? So, I, you know, uh, Line Town, going back to that, was probably a quarter risk position for us, um, you know, at the outset. It traded to the bid price and, and we exited, you know, in, in its entirety. So most transactions we're holding through to completion, I would say, generally. Um, but it's a really dynamic process where you just have to be monitoring, you know, for price movements and new news and developments, you know, every single day. So how does that translate into the performance? So what's the performance been of the fund, you know, historically? What's it been the past 12 months? Um, yeah, so um, look, historically, so we've been going for a little bit over 10 years. Um, we've done about 8.5% net of all fees over that period of time, um, which, you know, it's, it's sort of right in the sweet spot of, of where we'd like to be. So, um, you know, reasonably pleased with that as, as a number, um, in particular because, you know, we've, we've done that with kind of single-digit volatility. So over that period of time, we're, we're not trying to keep up with the market per se. We're an absolute return fund. So... You know, that sort of 8 to 10% per annum number is sort of in the sweet spot of where we want to be, net of fees. Um, but, you know, the ASX has done roughly that number over that same period of time, but, you know, with vol of, I'm going to say like 12 and a half or 13 versus, you know, for us, sort of vol of nine-ish over that period of time. 
Um, last three years, we'd be about 16% net of fees for three years um, with much, much lower vol, um, you know, sort of vol of more like 6% over that period of time. Um, you know, calendar year to date, we're up, I think, 11 and a bit net of fees, um, you know, as, as of end of October. So, um, you know, I, I guess we're having an average year of sorts in terms of, you know, slightly above average in terms of um, where we'd like to see returns. I think our 16% per annum stacks up pretty well over the last three years, you know, against the market and a lot of other strategies. So um, I think, you know, there's sort of this perception that when interest rates go, go up that, you know, M&A kind of dies and, and is, you know, sort of severely diminished. Uh, I think that's absolutely fair in bigger transactions and anything that's kind of PE sponsored where, you know, funding external debt funding is a, a big you know portion of kind of the um acquisition proceeds but you know the, the smaller mid-cap um section of the market you tend to have buyers paying for things in cash or from existing kind of you know um debt facilities or lines of credit that they have um script bids um you know one company buying it another you know for script so um you know we've, we've been pretty pleasantly surprised in the past few years about the opportunity set um, and look, we're not solely merger arb either, right? So, um, you know, we do do like, you know, a company liquidation, for example. So we, we did one recently um, in Sunland Group. Um, Sunland, for anyone who doesn't know, it was a Gold Coast property developer. I think that would scare most people off, um, you know, from, from the outset. Um, but, you know, founding family owned roughly 60% of the shares on issue. Um, they make an announcement sort of three years ago that, they're going to, you know, basically start liquidating the entire portfolio um, because, you know, it had never traded near NTA. Um, I think the stated NTA at that time was sort of roughly $2.20 and the stock was trading at maybe $1.40 or $1.50. Um, so we did a little bit of work and just, um, uh, you know, credit to, to Ben and my team um, who really, you know, sort of drove this one. But um, had a quick look at the balance sheet, realised that a lot of the inventory that was being carried was actually being carried at cost, you know, in some instances from years and years and years ago. Um, I'm sure you know, like lots of property companies like to revalue their assets, you know, kind of annually at least, um, and will typically increase NTA and, and sometimes, you know, earnings on that basis. Um, these guys just hadn't done that. And, you know, as we sort of realized that, it was like, okay, well, $2.20 is probably too low in terms of what the real NTA is. We can buy this stock at like $1.50. Um, you know, the, the founders and a lot of the staff, key staff, have a real vested interest here in getting an outcome. And just as they sort of sold off, you know, apartments and inventory and whatever, um, you know, it just turned into more and more of a cash box and the market just wasn't really reflecting uh, the progress they were making. So, um we got what was probably the last 90 cents capital distribution just a couple of weeks ago. Um, I think in total, including dividends and franking credits, um, we've had about $4.50, I think $4.60 returned to us through that process. Um, and there might be a little bit more you know, juice to squeeze out of it um, as they wind down the last of it in, in an unlisted uh, capacity. But um, you know, that was in plain sight for everyone to see the day it was announced, a month after it was announced, a year after it was announced. We wrote about it in our newsletters. Um, you know, it, it wasn't a secret. And yet, you know, as far as I could tell, we were probably the only kind of, you know, institutional professional fund of, um, you know, of note that was, was buying this stock at any stage through that process. So, um, 
you know, I, I mentioned some of the stuff we were doing early days 20 years ago, those efficiencies have been removed, right? But but that was literally just not being scared off by Gold Coast property developer, um, you know, getting a handle on the balance sheet and, and just working out, you know, how much capital was to be returned there over time. And, you know, full credit to the team at Sunland. I mean, they, they did an amazing job of that. Um, we were pretty passive through the process, didn't have a lot of contact with them, you know, throughout that, that process. It was pretty easy to work most of it out um, ourselves, but... Um, you know, and, and sorry, I tell that story because, you know, yeah, we, we want an active, buoyant merger, you know, market and, and takeover market in Australia for sure benefits our strategy. But, um, you know, in all market cycles, there are different versions of the same sorts of transactions, right? So, you know, it, it might be a merger, but it might be a spin off or it might be a liquidation. Um, it might be an asset sale, um, you know, with a capital return and then kind of some residual assets left behind. There's so many sort of, you know, permutations of this that, that tend to get mispriced so um yeah pretty pretty rich opportunity set um you know for the most part much more so than i think people would appreciate yes yeah, quite interesting um staying on the mechanics um you mentioned uh, a while ago that uh, what, the minimum is only two and a half thousand which is quite uncommon for you know strategy of your of your ilk um is this uh, can is this wholesale only? You know, can uh, anyone access the fund, and why have you done that that way? Yeah, um, look, rightly or wrongly, um, I sort of regret this five times a year at least. But um, it, it's a retail fund. <laughs> I mean, I, I joke when I say that. Look, I think, um, you know, I mentioned before, I, I didn't, you know, come from wealth or a family of means, um, and you know, when we're setting up the fund. The, the you know question was asked from our you know um, trustee. Well, you want the minimum to be? I said, well, you know, talk to me about what's the difference. What's what is the minimum? You know, it can be, and does it cost me more or less, or cost the fund more or less if it's two thousand or fifty thousand or, or whatever? And I said, look, you know, it's, it's two thousand dollars, and um, it doesn't make any difference. I said, well, you know, why do some people do fifty or a hundred or two fifty? And and you know, it's basically marketing, right? And and ego and something seems more out of reach if it's 50 grand or 250 grand than uh than if it's two so um i guess our view is that you know if someone's got two thousand dollars and they want to put it into our fund and they believe in what we're doing then um you know absolutely welcome you know them doing that um i mean clearly if you have a wholesale fund and you, you need to have a five hundred thousand dollar minimum or you need someone to be a sophisticated investor but um that's not the case here it, it is a little bit more expensive and time consuming to run a retail fund um but we felt pretty strongly about it being accessible, you know, to as many people as possible. Um, it's, it has daily liquidity, so, you know, it's available on a number of platforms. I, I know financial advisors generally, a lot of them prefer to have daily liquidity and a lot of the researchers prefer daily liquidity. So daily price retail fund, um, you know, accessible to everyone um, is, is, you know, basically the nuts and bolts of it. Yeah, it's, it's just so interesting, this strategy, and you're saying what you're the what only player in Australia currently operating this was this, um, and there's a number offshore. It, 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 what's the main reason for that? Yeah, so I think um, look, this type of strategy, you know, probably twenty years ago, um, you know, guys who were prop tra prop traders working on the um, you know prop desks and investment banks were the guys that were doing this type of stuff, right? So. Um, a couple of other managers in Australia that I'm aware of who sort of started out as prop traders, you know, doing that. They, they don't do merger up now, they do something different. But, um, you know, if you sort of think about being in an investment banking environment like that, your, your cost of capital is really low. So you're usually using bank balance sheet to do that. And you're just super plugged into the market, right? Like by virtue of the fact that you have so many different divisions within your bank, in, in, you know, investment banking, 
you know, trading, um, usually kind of, you know, what we would call wealth advisory now, but, you know, in old school terms, stockbrokers and, and the like, I, I think you're just really plugged into the market. You're across transactions and, you know, there's just loopholes everywhere to be exploited. And, and when you're using bank capital and you're a small team, then, you, you know, you can sort of chase nearly all opportunities, right? No matter how small they are, because, you know, if, if you and I are working together on a, a prop desk and we can find ways to make, you know, five grand in 10 minutes and 20 grand in three days and, you know, whatever, we're, we're just racking up as many gains as we can over that period, um, you know, to our ultimate benefit come bonus time, right? And I'm not necessarily sure that, you know, I mean, you have to account for your cost of capital, absolutely. But I think banks were kind of far less focused on that back then. Um, some of the risk ratings they had to give to various different strategies and, and uses of capital you know, looked a lot different back then than they do now. So, um, but, you know, a lot of those regulatory changes around, um, you know, sort of uh, capital ratios, but also like some of those, um, uh, well, the legislation that was enacted in the US in the first instance post-GFC just basically meant that all of these investment banks no longer, you know, had prop desks in the sense of, uh, of what they, you know, once did. So, um, you know, the choice for those guys is to, to be one of those private individuals that I mentioned who I know of who, you know, sit at home with their own Bloombergs and, you know, whatever else and, and you know, trade merger arb and events um, or you go out and set up a fund. And, you know, I, I think I think our ultimate capacity in this strategy in Australia, so focusing on Australia alone is, is probably four or $500 million would be my guess. So, you know, that's not big in anyone's terms, right? If, if I'm a big fund manager, whether it's offshore or here and you know you look at our returns you say geez those returns are pretty good and you know we could raise four or five hundred million dollars well we've got a team of five people and you know i just don't think it passes the hurdle rate for most bigger firms to set up a team with five people and bloomberg's and iris and you know all the different things we need we you know we've got a full-time uh you know coder who works in our team to um you know, I guess make the process of gathering information and, and monitoring, you know, both um, announcements and media and prices and, and whatnot um, just more efficient because you can't buy that off the shelf. So we do a lot of that ourselves. Um, that works when I have a lot of my own capital invested, when our team members have a lot of their own capital invested. Um, you know, we we don't take anything in terms of, you know, perform, uh, management fee out of the fund. We, we pay external expenses only and, and they're remunerated, you know, uh, in bulk by performance fee. So we've got really good alignment and the economics work, you know, for a small team who are pretty passionate about finding mispriced opportunities. Um, you know, I, I, I think the likelihood of someone setting up to do that in a professional sense um, is quite unlikely. And, and look, in terms of the big funds offshore, like, you know, a lot of people don't think much about this in Australia, but it's very kind of common, um, you know, internationally. Um and, you know, those guys are just too big, right? Like if you've got a billion dollars or $3 billion or $5 billion, they, they just can't, you know, deploy money efficiently into a lot of the smaller situations that, um, you know, that they were able to benefit from. So um, lots of them were trying to do that pre-COVID, I would say. There were, there were some funds that had raised quite a lot of money who were pretty active down here. And it was actually a pretty frustrating period for us because they were willing to trade things on far tighter spreads than, than we would have been. So when I said, you know, before we like to... For expecting a dollar in three months, we probably want to pay ninety six or ninety seven cents for it. They're happy to pay like ninety nine cents for it, you know. Um, so they're making a cent. They're levering it three or four times, um, you know, to, to make the numbers work. 
that's great when everything's working well but um you know when you you have a deal break or you have you know lots of volatility like we did during COVID, that doesn't work very well so um i think that scared a lot of those funds off from doing smaller stuff um you know in, in australia and look I've got no doubt they're doing some of it in bits and pieces and they're very much active like you know origin as an example would have heaps and heaps of offshore you know um merger up guys um, playing in the name lion town would have been the same um when bhp bought those minerals that was sort of big enough to um to attract that as well so you know those situations are pretty efficient um the likelihood of counter bids for really big names in big transactions like you know it's not impossible to think of a counterbidder for Origin, but you know the, the potential pool of counterbidders for Origin is you know far far smaller um, than you know your average kind of two hundred and fifty mil market cap company that that I might have in the portfolio at the moment. Um, not only is it harder you know to raise the capital or have the you know, financial firepower to buy Origin, but you've got a whole bunch of regulatory hurdles to you know kind of clear and um, uh, as well as part of that process. So um, yeah, look, I you know it's sort of a weird situation where we're just kind of big enough that, you know, we can kind of deploy capital in a professional systematic way, but not so big that we're pricing ourselves out of, you know, opportunities that I think others, um, you know, just can't access. Right. And, and the other thing is too, it, it's not at all sexy, right? Like it's in some ways, as I said, I, <laughs> I nerd out on it, but I think for a lot of people it's super boring, right? You have to read, you know, uh, I mean, your average scheme document probably is like 160 pages. I think we had one for a small mining company the other day. It was like 420 or 480 or something. Um, and you just can't afford not to read it, right? Like we've some of the best things we've ever found have been on like page 234 of like a 400-page booklet. Um, and if you get so lazy or so complacent that, you know, you start skim reading, that that's the type of thing you can miss. But I think if I say to most people, look, you can buy this thing for 96 cents, you'll have to read 480 pages, um, you'll have to be really organized around all of the dates and um, conditions, and then you'll get a dollar at the end of it. Oh, and by the way, if you get it wrong, you might end up only getting 50 cents. Um, it, it doesn't really scream compelling investment opportunity, uh, I suppose, is what I would say. Um, I can understand why you said you uh, wish you studied law. Because yeah. <laughs> all the reading you're doing is predominantly what a lot of my friends are doing that are lawyers. Yeah, I think uh, there's overlap for sure. I think it's um, part psychologist, uh, part um, fund manager and, um, and part, part lawyer, part I think. Part poker player. <laughs> um, one thing I've always uh, found quite interesting just looking at the, the cyclical nature of markets, um, I've always noticed, um, you know, a trend when you're looking at patterns, um, especially in cyclical um, asset classes where, uh, the smart players, you kind of, you know, keep abreast, as you said, you mentioned two names, um, who look at doing these acquisitions, they kind of have the cash balance to essentially wait until the pressure's on and say commodity price in lithium is, you know, got from 600000 down to 140000 maybe consolidating here, but then, it, and then just what, what's the number one care business? Cash flow. Cash is king. So when people are so rich and cash poor and they can't raise and, you know, finding equity is difficult, I've always found it quite an interesting pattern how uh, mergers and acquisitions tend to really start to ramp up near the bottom of the cycle. Um, on the negative side, a lot of acquisitions happen at the top of the cycle, which you kind of want to avoid. But I've always um, seen it as a leading indicator, like as an example in the lithium space right now, some acquisitions are starting to come through at these lower levels, and then it's like almost like a consolidation play. I think we've also seen the same thing in the online gambling space right now. Exactly yeah. the same thing's happening. There's a gigantic consolidation play. 
um, from the big cash up players looking at consolidating, you know, 32 small companies into about, you know, eight. Um, do, do you agree? Uh, I know the pattern exists, but is that, would you say that's a very good leading indicator on, you know, a changing tide from like a MACD, you know, a 200 yeah. Perspective on cycles, or it's just case by case. No, look, I, I mean, I, I think there's definitely, you know, that's an, a factor for sure, right? And I mean, lithium is interesting because I think what you're seeing in lithium at the moment is, you, you know, there's sort of two factors at play, right? Like, yes, the lithium price is off a little bit, and you know, in, in some ways, it's kind of counterintuitive that there's so much interest in lithium right now and lithium M and A and the kind of land grab that's happening in the face of falling prices, right? Like, um, you know, even SQM, um, uh, you know, with his bid for, for AZS at, at the moment, and, you know, obviously Gina and Chris Ellison have been in there as, as well. And, you know, Gina and Chris are buying up everything everywhere, right? Like 20% in, you know, um, uh, WC8, Wildcat, I think it's called, and um, Delta Lithium and whatever, right? So, so they're everywhere at the moment. And it's almost like, you know, intuitively you go, okay, well, when lithium prices are sort of in free fall, Usually, you don't expect to see you know the M and A aspect um, until there's sort of a stabilisation, right? So if we ignore lithium for a second, let, let's talk about you know sort of tech, right? So tech flying high, kind of into the back end of you know 2021, I guess, and then you know sort of early 2022, um, we kind of have this you know reckoning in in tech, at least for a lot of the more speculative stuff, right? So businesses that kind of had good, you know. Um, ARR numbers in terms of growth and had had investors throwing heaps of money at them to, you know, it's fine. Just keep losing money, keep losing money. It's all about growth. It's all about, you know, getting as big as you can get as quickly as you can that the profits will come to, well, okay, money's not free anymore and you guys are burning heaps of cash and, you know, we, we can't keep funding, um, you know, this on its current trajectory. Um, what we sort of saw you know, late last year is not a lot of tech M&A in the first half of the year, but in the second half of the year, as tech had kind of stabilized and bottomed, well, all of a sudden it's like, okay, we can actually figure out here now which businesses are viable and have, you know, good long-term trajectory and are just, you know, to your point before, in a bit of a hole because they've run out of cash. So, you know, the, the asset is good, the business is good, but they've just completely, you know, mismatched revenues with um, with expenses. So you saw some bids last year where that was the case, right? So Nitro was one of those which um, Potentia ended up buying. It sort of, you know, developed into a bit of a bidding war. Um, and that was sort of interesting because those guys waited to bid until the market had stabilised somewhat. But as the bid was on foot, the market started to recover. Um, and, you know, what was sort of happening was they were just kind of, you know, one step behind the whole way because people started going, well, hang on, if you guys weren't bidding for this, this thing would be probably up more than it is, you know, because of your, your bid, right? So I said before, you know, a falling market shouldn't really impact on our strategy too much if we construct the portfolio well. A rising market can help it in some instances, right? Because if the backdrop is that the you know prices fundamentally of whatever these you know companies are would, would be increasing otherwise, it puts a bit of pressure on bidders, you know, to, to kind of have to up the ante. And I mean that's what's happened to these guys in origin, right? They started working on this deal like a year and a half ago when most people in the Australian market hated Origin. Um, you know, the earnings outlook and uh, you know for the company wasn't as good as it is now. But they've since had, I think, two results. Um, you know, certainly one more recently that kind of woke everyone up to what the value was. Um, plus, they've got this kind of you know octopus uh, investment in in the UK, which you know I think no one thought about before. And you know, 
now it's kind of sky's the limit in terms of what the valuation is. But, um, you know, it's sort of funny how markets work, right? So uh, I, I guess my point is in tech there, people are waiting. They're not trying to catch the falling knife. They're waiting for the knife to stick in the ground and, and then you make your bid. That's not happening in lithium. And, and I think the reason for that is it's also a land grab, right? I think all these guys have realized there's only so much of, you know, land to go around. And, you know, sometimes you just pay what you have to irrespective of market backdrop because you feel like if you don't move now, you'll miss out. And, and that bid that I mentioned before where, you know, it started at a dollar and finished north of eight, I seen a company called Pure Energy, PES, I think was the code. And it was, a, it was when the coal seam gas boom was happening in Australia, which I think was sort of circa 2009, I want to say. Um, you had Queensland Gas, you had Pure Energy, you had Arrow Energy, like all these companies. And, and same thing, it just became a land grab and consolidation. Um, it's what you're seeing in lithium now um, for sure. Um, so yeah, look, it's, sorry, it was a long way of answering the question, but it, it's a factor. Absolutely. And I think there's lots of reasons that M&A happens and that's why, you know, I'm, I'm not super concerned about market cycle far less now than I was, you know, 10 or five years ago, because sometimes M&A happens in sectors that have been bombed out and are stabilizing. Sometimes it happens at the top of the market, um, you know, for strategic reasons, like in a, a land grab type, you know, situation. Um, sometimes it happens because, you know, people just go one step too far and get too caught up in the mania of, you know, booming markets and decide to do ridiculous mergers at, you know, the absolute top of the market. I mean, Elon kind of bought Twitter at the top of the market, right? Like if, if he'd waited four more weeks, not only would he probably not afford it, but if he'd wanted to, he would have paid, you know, half the price that, that he had to pay. So um, the interesting thing is that, you know, there's people at the, behind all of these transactions, right? So none of it happens in a vacuum. And I think it comes down to, you know, some boards won't do a deal and they'll watch all their competitors do a deal and then they'll watch their competitors do another deal. And then eventually, you know, that's the end, right? I mean, I've got a group of mates who probably do too. We all joke about like Sydney, you know, uh, residential property, right? Like I've, I've got mates who have refused to buy a house for the last 15 years because the market's going to crash, right? Now, market hasn't really crashed. It's had a couple of corrections arguably along the way, but the, the joke is now that, you know, Sydney property could correct by 50% and they're still no better off than if they just bought a house 10 years ago, right? So um, it's, you know, people do things for, for weird reasons, but their big fear is, which I completely understand, is having not bought a house for 10 years, you can't then like jump in and buy a house, you know, with at a moment's notice because you feel like you're buying the top of the market just before a correction comes, right? So the, the well, more something like... Last, uh, you know, what was in COVID, what, 2%? And now people paying sixes and sevens. This poor people, have, their bills have gone up 200-odd percent. And the, 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 the amount of money which they're borrowing is... Stuck. I live in Lane Cove. The average price was, what, a million bucks before COVID? Now it's like three. Yeah, right. So that, I mean... That, but but I think my you know my point sort of is there right like there are a whole bunch of people who bought during COVID when interest rates yeah. were two percent because of the fear of missing out right like boards do that as well right you, you can sit there and go well companies make better decisions and they've got governance and and whatever not necessarily right like you know some acquisitions are really smart some acquisitions are really dumb um, we don't really mind whether they're smart or dumb we just you know want a margin and, and and ideally a competitive uh, bidding process. Yeah, so the one that always um, I think about um, about doing the deal at the wrong time and then the consequences of it was QBE like a decade ago, and they were paying for that for years. So that's why I was I always see that as a pattern: people doing deals at the wrong time and then they have to hold it. 
For um, sure. Look, I mean, they get talked into it. I mean, we're to, you know, a bit off topic, but they get talked into it by investment bankers and brokers sometimes too, right? And, and sometimes shareholders. I mean, I won't name the company, but we're involved in something at the moment where the CEO and founder got kicked out not that long ago by a bunch of shareholders who wanted him gone. And then there was a raid on the register like a week and a half later. And all these shareholders that led to the founder getting kicked out sold all of their stock. And now the company's in no man's land. It's subject to a bid. The founder's no longer the CEO. And the shareholders who wanted the CEO kicked out you know, are now gone. Now, I'm not passing judgment one way or the other on, on whether that was a good decision or not. But, um, you know, it's, it's an unusual situation where someone's being kicked out by some shareholders that, you know, are no longer there and, and the founder's still there. He's still a shareholder and now they're defending this bid. I, I think that happens all the time in, you know, companies that do capital raisings get talked into it by investment bankers or they get talked into it, you know, by brokers or shareholders. It's um, it's a factor for sure. People just sometimes think the champagne's never going to stop flowing. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, you use fear to tell them, hey, it has stopped flowing. It's never going to flow again. So you better take action and raise a bunch of money and, and pay us a bunch of fees on the way through, right? Like it's... um. You know, everyone, I guess, in, in all facets of life, but markets, you know, there's the either play of fear and greed, right? You just got to figure out which side of that you're uh, you're currently on and, and try and get back a bit more towards the center. Well, your investing universe is pretty interesting. So uh, my favorite question to finish on is uh, what keeps you up at night and uh, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Yeah, look, the answer to that question is probably the, the same thing, right? I mean, uh, I hope it comes across, you know, when we're talking about this, like I'm just absolutely fascinated, you know, by this strategy and the opportunities that, that exist. I think, um, you know, this concept that if you just dig a little and you read and you push and whatever that, um, you know, I sometimes talk about, it's just like a big pile of money sitting over the corner in the corner covered up by a blanket. You just have to be curious enough to go over and lift up the blanket and, uh, and you know, see what's underneath it. So um, that's what gets me up. I'm, I'm really passionate about, you know, what we're doing. Uh, it's probably also, you know, what keeps you awake at night a little bit, right? I mean, um, you can't ever be too complacent in this your role, right? So you, you've got to make sure that you're really crossing the T's, dotting the I's and that, you know, you, your research is thorough. You've got to have this kind of sense of scepticism. You've got to have enough confidence to believe you've got an edge and you know what you're doing, but also, you know, I, I think be humble enough to realise that you might be missing something and, and maybe someone, you know, knows something that you don't. Um, look, I, I would say I sleep pretty well most of the time, right? But I, I definitely uh, have been known to be making notes in my iPhone uh, five minutes before going to sleep to remind myself to do something, uh, you know, the, the next morning. So, um yeah, look, I I feel very privileged that I get to do this, you know, for a uh, for a job. I think, um, yeah, it, it definitely has its moments, uh, good and, and bad. But you know, on, on balance, I think um, you know, it's a pretty fun thing to wake up and do every day. If um, anyone listening wants to learn more about the strategy and yourself, how can they find you? Yeah, uh, look, I mean, you know, our, our website, um, obviously, so uh, www.harvestlaneam.com.au. Um, I'm not super active on Twitter. I, I have a reasonable number of Twitter followers for someone or ex, uh, who, who doesn't tend to tweet much. But, um, uh, you know, th there's bits and pieces like white papers and interviews and things that, that I've done or contributed to floating around, um, you know, on the net. But, look, I think... Um, if anyone feels strongly enough about it, we've we've put together a, a pretty solid recommended reading list over the years for um, anyone who's sufficiently interested in uh, in what we're doing. So um, if someone reaches out to me via email uh, through the website, I'd be more than happy, or through Twitter for that matter, to um, to share that. So um, I joke it'll either lead to a career in merger up or I help people sleep at night. So either way. 
really, really good having you on. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, thanks very much. I appreciate uh, the opportunity. Um, it's good to chat to you. All right. Have a good one. Bye. Thanks. You too. Any views expressed in this recording do not represent the view of any other third party and are the sole personal opinions of the speaker. Any reference to financial product does not constitute advice or recommendation and before any action, you should seek proper advice from your financial professional. Australian listeners should head to www.moneysmart.gov.au to find more information on obtaining financial advice. To get in touch with York, head to our website www.yorkwealth.com.au.